what causes you to lose sleep? If you were at a high school or middle school uh, retreat, likelihood you didn't get much sleep um, throughout that. I remember those days well, and I'm glad those days are gone uh, for me. But what causes you to lose sleep personally? I typically am the kind of person who falls asleep about as soon as my head hits the pillow. And my wife, uh, sometimes that frustrates her um, out of just because maybe she sometimes struggles to sleep a little bit more with lots going on in her mind. But there's seasons, though, while I typically fall asleep quickly, there are seasons uh, that I find sleep difficult. There's many things that are on my mind that keep me up or make me restless. How about you? Maybe it's the health diagnosis of a family member. Maybe it could be uh, relational challenges with a friend, the desire for growth and a child, the uncertainty of a bank account. You might be the kind of person that has a difficult time shutting off the anxieties of your life. And there's many things that, uh, that tempt you to lose sleep. And your lack of sleep actually reveals the kind of stresses or things that press in on you, that weigh difficult on your mind. And your personal life can seem quite chaotic. Our personal lives can feel quite chaotic and we lose sleep over that. What causes you to lose sleep in our world, what going on in our world causes you to lose sleep? Maybe cultural events keep you up at night. War in Europe, the Middle East, state legislation, widespread anti-Semitism, political uncertainty, national division. Those things feel like lumps in your mattress that cause restlessness to twist and turn at night because you keep thinking, what's going to happen next? What will come of these situations. Our world and our culture are chaotic, full of chaos. Now, what causes you to lose sleep as a Christian? What causes you to lose sleep as a Christian? Do you feel the pressure of being a, an evangelical believer in our day? Maybe you lose sleep over an evangelistic conversations that you wish you could have handled differently. Maybe you feel a pressure to make sure your Christianity doesn't come out into the public in your workplace. Maybe recent sensitivity training at your job causes you to be cautious about saying the wrong thing or walking on eggshells and be careful that you don't offend anybody by a haphazard comment. You might be frightened about being labeled a bigot, backward, or on the wrong side of history when it comes to sexual norms in our culture. In her new book, Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age, Rosaria Butterfield paints a picture of the chaos of our world. And she notes several prominent assertions of our day that are entirely antithetical to the Christian faith. And it's the world that we live in, the challenges that we as believers have to navigate now in our society. And as we wrestle with these issues, we as Christians will feel increasingly marginalized. We'll feel an increasing uh, reality that we are not part of the mainstream of our culture. Asserting something as simple as the goodness of humanity as male and female can end a relationship, result in cancellation, social media firestorms. Who could have, who could have foreseen the challenges of Christian bakers? Photographers, teachers, counselors, and any number of roles. Who could have imagined the chaotic society that we live in simply as Christians in 21st century America? Life for the Christian in our culture is quite chaotic. 
But the issues, we think about Christianity on a global scale, the, the issues grow all the more complex and chaotic. Think about the Muslim girl who converts to Christianity, but now lives in hiding in fear that her father and her brothers are going to kill her. Think about the Christian young man who converts to, uh, to Christ at college and goes home and is told that he no longer has a place there and is now needs to either forfeit his inheritance or stay with Jesus. To, to stay with Jesus, he must forfeit his inheritance. Think about uh, global workers that we support now and in, in that country, in the countries where we have global workers, to be recognized as a church in that culture you, must have, you have to have so many number of people, a vast number of people to even be recognized. And all those believers to be recognized as part of that church need to go to the government to register as a Christian. It's identified on their passport. And now they feel under the constant interrogation or suspicion from the government. They're being watched consistently. Life as a Christian can feel chaotic everywhere. So when we think about the chaos, we think about all those things that keep us awake at night. If I just ruined your night's sleep, I'm sorry. But well, here's the thing, friends. As all those things that, that, that tempt to keep us awake at night, in the midst of our chaotic culture, my prayer is as we read Psalm 4 today, that we'll sleep safe and secure. The answer to the chaos, the answer to the hurricane of chaos in our world is to read Psalm 4 and to see that we can sleep well, through our trust in Christ. Psalm 4 gives us an answer to the chaos because it reminds us of our main idea today, if you're following on your worship outline, our main idea, trust in Christ secures us in chaos. Trust in Christ secures us in chaos. And I hope as we read this today that we don't just say, that was nice for David. My, my prayer, my hope is that we would feel this as well and that we, through understanding of Psalm 4, would sleep safe and secure, knowing that trust in Christ secures us. Go ahead and stand, if you would, as I read from Psalm 4. And honor the reading of God's word as I read from this. Pray that we hear this well, and we apply it to our own day and our own time. Psalm 4. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts and on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is God's word. You may be seated. So life is chaotic for the Christian. Life is chaotic in our world. Life is chaotic personally. But Psalm 4 communicates the security of God's people through our trust in Him, through our trust in His 
son. And as we look at this and we compare this to the chaos, the chaos in our culture, we'll see three glorious truths for secure people in chaos. Three glorious truths for secure people in chaos. And our hope in this brief series in the Psalms is that this gives us a model of prayer. This gives us a model of worship. This gives us a model of trust in the midst of our own chaotic circumstances so that we might see how David prays, how the people sing, and that we might pray and sing that same way as well as God's people today. Three glorious descriptions of secure people in chaos. Number one, secure people call on the Lord. Secure people call on the Lord. Look at verse one. David writes, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness, for you have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Again, this is a congregational hymn at one level that the people would have sung together and notice who they're praying to. Their, their attention is focused on God. They're praying to God, answer me when I call. They're drawing attention. They're getting his attention. Answer me, Lord. Now we might read that and see, make it seem like it's pretty demanding. You know, like couldn't, he, couldn't David have come a little kinder? Um, uh, dear, glorious, heavenly father, would you, would you, if you have time, perhaps... Answer me in a difficult situation. No, this is written, this is sung in a time of distress. This is more like the person who's drowning saying, save me, help me, answer me. If someone were to cry out from us who's drowning in the pool, we wouldn't just look at them and say, could you ask a little nicer? <laughs> this is a desperate situation. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt, answer me, I need you, Lord. Intervene in my circumstances. I am at a loss. There's nothing else I can do. I need your help. I need your salvation. Intervene. Answer me. This is the cry of David in the midst of his distress. He has no problem going straight to the Lord and saying, I need your help. The ESV directs this or translates this as God of my righteousness. The NIV might be a little closer by translating the phrase, my righteous God. But in any case, commentator Alan Ross notes that this reveals David's relational request as he says the righteous God champions the rights of his people. The righteous God champions the rights of his people. This is in the context of David's vibrant relationship with the Lord that he goes to God. Because, because David knows that God is a God of righteousness, which means if God is a God of righteousness, then he cares about the plight of his people. God is a God of righteousness. He cares about injustice he, and oppression. He cares about his people and seeing them uh, through, seeing them uh, treated fairly, seeing them honored, seeing them restored. And it's David's relationship with the Lord that causes him to pray, causes him to call out. Is that your vibrant relationship? Do you have a vibrant relationship with the Lord where you can cry out anytime and anywhere, any prayer? just read that uh, prayer story to, uh, to our girls just recently. And that, I think that was the main idea. It was anytime, anywhere, any prayer, we can pray to the Lord. What a great truth for little kids to know. What an amazing truth for us to know too. You know, you might hesitate to talk to your boss or to talk to your spouse and say, you know what, this really isn't that big of a deal. I'm just kind of like, let it slide. It's not that I'm not going to trouble them with this. But brothers and sisters, in a vibrant, secure relationship with God, then we can cry out, call out, and pray to God anytime on any prayer. Answer me when I 
call. When you're drowning, who do you call out to? Do you call out to the Lord? David calls out through his relationship, and his relationship is one of experience. David had experienced this vibrant relationship with God. He had experienced God's salvation, and he, he reminds God of that. He has found the Lord to be faithful in the past. Look at how verse 1 continues. You have given me relief when I was in distress. David knows his own testimony. David knows God's intervention in his own life. He knows how God has worked to save him. Commentator Jim Hamilton notes how this phrase could be literally translated as, in the, in the tight place, you made it broad for me. In the tight place, you made it broad for me. David's claustrophobic. He's, 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 he's reminding himself of those claustrophobic situations where God had opened the door, had opened the way. He had relieved him of his distress. What's the most claustrophobic you've ever been? Maybe you felt this physically. Maybe you've been in a cave or you've been just in a situation where you felt like the room was pressing in around you. But most of us have felt this in life at one level. And we would say, we just feel the heavy weight of life, the stresses of my life, the, the spiritual depression that I feel under, that dark night of the soul, if we want to call it that, feels like it's pressing in around us. And life itself feels claustrophobic. It suffocates us. What's suffocating you? But where have you found God to relieve you in the tight place? Where has God made the way broad? But notice last week when Wes was preaching Psalm 3, a phenomenal job through Psalm 3. And he reminded us that Psalm 3 was written in the context of David's uh, running away from his son Absalom. Absalom was essentially starting a coup in the land and was trying to take the throne from David. David was able then to say, I've seen your deliverance. I've, seen your, I've, I've experienced your relief and distress. Because just a psalm earlier, he was able to say, I watched that take place. I watched you deliver me there. The connection between Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 is clear because Psalm 4 is this way of David praying, I watched you do that in the past. Friends, where have you seen God intervene to relieve you in your circumstances where you feel pressed, where you feel the claustrophobic nature of life pressing in on you? How can you testify to God's goodness? Now, our circumstances might be chaotic. David's circumstances were chaotic, but his relationship with the Lord was not. David's relationship with the Lord was not chaotic. It was secure so he could call, he could go. And which is, notice how he ends verse 1 with this phrase of grace. He says, be gracious and hear my prayer. David's, all of David's life had been in the context of God's undeserved kindness, his favor. That word there for grace could also be translated as favor. The, the emphasis, though, the point is that it's undeserved. David didn't go and say, I, God, I've done all these good things. Will you listen to me? My, my goodness, my wisdom, my morality has brought me to you. God, would you listen? I kind of feel like I'm owed it now. No. David comes in the context of grace. David's blessing in life was always undeserved by God. And no one has ever had a relationship apart from the context of grace with the Lord. God's undeserved kindness to sinners. David didn't come on the basis of his goodness. He came in the context of grace. And brothers and sisters, the ecosystem of our relationship with the Lord is all by grace. Grace is the air we breathe. It's the water we drink. 
It is the context of every vibrant relationship, true relationship with God. And grace is not like some ATM with a limited amount in there that we go to, press the code in, we get a little bit that fills our cup, and then we're good. And it's like, no, grace with the Lord is this boundless treasure of resources. This boundless bank account where he completely just lavishes his grace on sinners, all undeserved, nothing that we receive. That's anything good is what we deserve. It's all of grace. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. If you think that God will listen to you because you somehow have earned a hearing with him, God, do you you know who I am? God, do you know my job? Do you know my life of, of, moral, of moral purposes, of, of integrity? God, would you answer me on the basis that I've done pretty good? No. See, if we go into God's office demanding fair payment, would you pay me what I'm owed? The wages of sin is death. But see, what's so great about the truth of the gospel, what's so wonderful, is that it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own. It is a gift of God so that no man may boast. Grace gives us the way of boasting in the Lord, of boasting in his undeserved kindness to put Christ on the cross for us so that we come and say, be gracious to me. God, give me something I don't deserve. That's the gospel, and that's the environment of our relationship with him. But we are secure, brothers and sisters, not through our moral goodness with God, but by his grace that he's lavished on us in his son. Our security to call on him is all by grace. But as we go on, this this, this grace and security becomes all the more rich, becomes all the more wonderful when we see it compared to the chaos of our culture. Our second glorious truth of secure people is that secure people are set apart by the Lord. Secure people are set apart by the Lord. It's almost as David, or it's almost as if David turns his face from talking to the Lord to then talking to his culture or his enemies. In the second section of the psalm, Charles Spurgeon says, We are led from the closet of prayer into the field of conflict. Verse one seems like this private relationship or private conversation with David and the Lord, but then verses two and following end up this public interaction where he's speaking, David's speaking to the people. Around him. Look at verse 2. David says, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. David here sounds a little like the prophet's. He, twice he says, how long? How long? Have you ever said something like that out loud? How much longer? David's uh, question here, the statement, how long, is not really a, quest, a request of information, but it's a cry of exasperation. We felt that in our lives. Kind of go through year after year, month after month of, of challenge, of suffering. And then it feels like just one more thing piles on top, on top of you. And you just go, how much longer? How much more can I take? How long will this go on? And David's frustration is twofold. First, it's in his honor being turned into shame. Look at verse 2. How long, O Lord, shall my honor be turned to shame? 
This could be related exactly to the people. How long are they turning his honor into shame? This, this, the, the men that he's referring to could be the elites of society. It could be the higher upper echelon. But anyways, it's them rejecting him as God's anointed king. To, to, to turn David's honor into shame is to, to re, re, reject the honor that the anointed king is rightly owed. They turn his honor or his glory into shame because of their rebellion against God's anointed. And we see this if you just look at Psalm 2, verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. For centuries past, people have rejected the Lord. They're they're, they're turning his honor into shame. How much longer, we might ask as well, how much longer will people reject the Lord, reject his Messiah? And we get a sense from this phrase that this is not just a passive or indifferent attitude toward the king, but they are actively maligning, mocking, and shaming David's faith. Do you feel the fear of mockery in our culture for following Jesus? Do you feel those pressures, that chaos? Carl Truman summarizes these realities in his book, Strange New World, where he talks about you know, in, in, especially related to issues on the, the modern sexual revolution, he would say our culture today celebrates what used to be condemned and, condemned what, and condemns what used to be celebrated. We, in, we live in this environment and we feel that pressure on those issues, especially on the sexual revolution, on a common basis. See, for a Christian to say that sex is reserved for the covenantal relationship of a husband and a wife, and all expressions of sexuality outside of that relationship, including same-sex relationships or premarital sexual relationships, cohabitation, to say that those are sinful is to invite mockery and ridicule from our neighbors. When we say those things, some people will look at us as if we're from another planet, or we've somehow time-traveled from centuries gone by. It's 2024 for crying out loud. Who really still thinks those things? We feel that pressure, that mocking from our culture. But to reject the Lord and to reject his anointed is just one side of the coin. To reject something is then to chase something else. He says, not only does he say, how long will you reject the Lord? How long will you turn my honor or my glory into shame? Then he goes on to say, how long will you love vain words and seek after lies? See, to rebel against the king and the truth means that you're actually running towards something else. You're running after another system. You're attaching yourself to something else entirely. See, remember that there's no true atheism. People either worship the true God or they worship a false God. Everybody worships something. Everybody commits themselves to the worship, to the idolatry of something else. Recently in my devotions, I started reading Romans. And in Romans chapter 1 this week, I couldn't help but see the similarities between Romans 1 and Psalm 4 verse 2. Romans 1, 21 For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking 
And their foolish hearts were darkened. And claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Doesn't that sound a whole lot like How long will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you seek after vain lies and destruction? See, any time that we reject God's plan and revelation for our, uh, through his word, every time we reject God's plan for our lives, we exchange God's truth for a lie. And there are popular lies in our culture against biblical truth all over the place. Here are just a few that we might be tempted, even in the church, to seek after, to dwell on, and to reject God. Here's just a few. Male leadership in the home and in the church is always bad, always toxic. Biblical marriage is far too narrow. Hell seems way too mean. Repentance of sin isn't required. How long Will you seek after vain lies to exchange the truth of God for images that are created? And see, there will always be lies in our culture that set us up against the mainstream, that distance us from our culture. And in fact, we must be prepared all the more to feel like a stranger, an alien or sojourner in the midst of this world that we might call home. I remember being just nine years old when I was first made fun of for being a Christian. And to the parents of our church today, we need to have conversations with our kids now of what it means to not be accepted by every person or every walk of life within our society. To be prepared to what it means to endure challenges, to, to, uh, to be persecuted for being a follower of Jesus, to be maligned, to be misunderstood when we assert just basic Christian truth on the exclusivity of Christ, the inspiration of, of the scripture, the authority of God's word, the, the necessity of the church. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 is true. For all, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And while all that chaos, while all those lies can tempt us to be discouraged, these difficult realities should not discourage our faith. For while David throws up his hands in frustration, he also confesses how God's people are secure and set apart for himself. Look at verse 3. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. He hears when I call to him. See, there's so much gospel hope in that verse. There's so much glorious truth for people who are enduring chaos in the midst of that. David is simultaneously making two points here. First, he's inviting the people he's frustrated with to turn in repentance and faith. He's inviting those people. The people that he's saying, how long will you chase after lies? He doesn't have a fist shaking at them. How long are you going to do this? He has an open hand. Turn. Respond. The Lord sets apart the godly for himself. He continues speaking to the same audience to know that there is space for them with the godly. There is always room 
in the family of God, if they would just turn from your sin and repentance and place faith in Jesus, there is always space. God protects the godly. David is also, he's also reminding that every faithful believer is secure in Jesus. Every faithful Christian is secure through trust in Christ. Alan Ross says the point of the line is that God has marked out the godly for himself. He will not abandon them to the wicked. Psalm 2 ends with blessed are all who take refuge in him. Brothers and sisters, there is so much security in trusting Christ. In the midst of the chaos of our world, we can do two things. We can evangelize boldly and we can live faithfully. Think of how this truth encourages us to evangelism. To know that God sets apart the godly for himself and some of which are yet to respond faithfully to Jesus. And yet we still speak knowing that God is working in their hearts, wooing and drawing them, opening their eyes that they might see and behold Christ. We need, we need the same reminder that the Apostle Paul, of all people, needed reminded of in, in Acts chapter 18. In Acts 18, Paul is preaching the gospel in Corinth. He's experienced some opposition there. But then the Lord appears to him. And he says this in Acts 18 verse 10. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. And do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many, many in this city who are my people. Paul received that promise prior to all of his preaching ministry. Paul received that promise in the midst of a chaotic world to say, boldly proclaim the gospel, Paul, for I have many that I'm working in. I have many here who are going to hear your, uh, the, the gospel of joy, the gospel of peace, the gospel of good news of how they can have a right relationship with God. I have many that I'm working in that I'm drawing to myself that are my people. The Lord protects the godly. He sets apart the godly for himself. Brothers and sisters, proclaim God, the gospel. Proclaim the good news despite the chaos of our culture. But knowing that the Lord sets apart the godly for himself also encourages us to live faithfully. God has always has a remnant of, for himself. There's this theme, this line in the Bible that just draws out over and over again that God is keeping and securing his people. That they are safe in his hand. I think about 1 Kings 19, where uh, God comes to Elijah. Elijah's frustrated. He's, he's just ended all. How much longer, O oh Lord? He's praying lots of the same prayer that we might be praying too. Would you just end this? He's frustrated. He's down and out. But God comes to Elijah and he says, Elijah, I still have 7,000 people that have yet to bow the knee. Just a week ago, I was with 13,000 college students at a conference about global missions. 50,000 people, 50,000 young adults gathered in Atlanta to sing God's praises and to hear God's word. Brothers and sisters, we are not alone. God is raising up a generation of people. He is protecting and securing his people to live faithfully. Just read some church history. Read the stories of the saints who endured everything. Some even who endured, their own, who, who were faithful despite their own death to the Lord, knowing that it was worth it to trust in Christ. Read the stories of the persecuted church in this day and age of how they stay faithful to Jesus in the midst of their chaotic culture. Brothers and sisters, we do not need peace in our society to live faithfully with Jesus, for Jesus faithfully pursues us, protects us. The Lord sets apart the godly for himself. What great hope there is for us, which is why he can conclude 
this section in verse 4 by saying, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Most commentators would say that David is actually describing a type of conversion process here. Remember, he's still speaking to the men. He's still speaking at one level to the culture. And what he's saying, be angry and do not sin. Another way to translate this would be, is to say, be agitated. Tremble and do not sin. Tremble at the sin in your own life and around your world and do not sin. Do not fall back into that. Respond in faith and repentance. Offer right sacrifices. Trust in the Lord. Be aggravated by your own sin and respond in faith and repentance. Are you, are you aggravated? Are you angry at the sin in the world? For most of us who gather here on a consistent Sunday morning basis, I imagine we, we said, yeah, I'm really ticked off at the sin out there. But do you tremble at your sin? Brother Christian, do you, do you, do you feel the weight of your conscience, the sin that you feel against the Lord? And do you lie awake on your pillow saying, I know I've sinned against God? And do you allow that to say, or do you, do you, do you spring up? Do you, does your sleeplessness allow you to spring up to get on your knees and say, I repent, Lord, and I trust you. Would you work in my heart anew? If you're not a Christian and you're listening to this, and, and you, do you feel the weight of your conscience knowing that you don't behave how you long to? Do you, do you get frustrated at all about there's something in you that just feels not right? That there's a gap somewhere in your life and what's weighing on your conscience is that you're agitated with the sin in your life, brother. Go deep into that feeling. Go deep into that emotion and allow what weighs on your conscience. Don't ignore that and say what must, what, what, what must be going on inside of you is normalized. So just so reject any and, and all things in your conscience that say no. Just pursue it. No, re- friend, Embrace those feelings in your conscience where you don't feel right. Embrace that, that where you're lying on your pillow and you just, you're agitated by what's going on within you. And take all that to the foot of the cross. When you feel like an enemy of God, remind yourself that Jesus died for his enemies so that they might be his friends and be brought back into right relationship with him. Be agitated, be angry, and do not sin. Trust in the Lord. It's so good to know that God sets apart the godly for himself and that all of our feelings of frustration, all the weight that we feel, we can take it to God. We can have a right relationship with him and we can persevere in the midst of a chaotic culture. Repentance and faith or conversion is not always easy. In fact, it's quite difficult and we're told to count the cost. Trusting in Jesus is not always this easy thing. Sometimes we're, we're told uh, you know, that the gospel is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And yet I don't feel either of those sometimes in coming to Christ. I'm told to reject lots of what I want to do. Rosaria Butterfield is so helpful when she talks about repentance as hating your sin without hating yourself. We consider the loss and we ask whether or not it is worth it. Whether it's worth the challenge. But this is our final truth about a secure relationship with God. See, in our security, we call out. In our security, we know that we're protected by God. And there's forgiveness, there's reconciliation with God through the gospel. But there is also so much joy. Joy. 
Our final truth is that secure people receive joy in the Lord. Verse six says, there are many who say, who will show us some good. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord. Make me dwell in safety. It's almost as if the scoffers get one more shot and they say, who's going to make you happy? What, what, what's the point? Who will show us some good? A scoffer might look at Christianity and say, I'm plenty happy. I got all my stuff. I got this nice house. I got this nice bank account. Things are going pretty well for me. Who will show us some good? What good has Christianity done for you, they might say. Even a struggling believer might ask the same question. Who will show us some good? What's the point? I'm sick of suffering. I'm just done with it all. See, the mocker, he noticed the mocker might even try to abuse scripture. David includes here a quote from Numbers chapter 6. This is Aaron's blessing where he says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Some will think, hey, based on what the Bible says, it seems as if the Christian life is supposed to be a smooth, easy ride. The, the Christian life is supposed to be one of prosperity and blessing and want. God would bless you who will show us some good. But David answers this again with his own personal testimony. David knows that there's joy in the Lord. Look at what he says in verse 7. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Some have said this, this hymn, this psalm might have been written in the midst of some kind of famine so that they were able to realize themselves that there is still more joy in the Lord than even when there's nothing to, to physically sustain our lives. See, a Christian can see that there is great joy in Christ alone, even when the world is in chaos. And I'm so grateful for so how many in our church, when the challenges of life arise, when, when the difficulties come, when there's no physical reason to give God praise or to have joy, you have joy in the Lord. Think about just some other passages from the Psalms. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 63, 5, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night for you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. Psalm 67, verse 4, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Brothers and sisters, there is so much joy in knowing Christ. I was told that 2023 was one of the best years for farmers. There's great joy in the abundance and in the harvest. But Psalm 4 would tell us, despite the joy of the harvest, there is so much more joy with the Lord. Spurgeon would say, Christ in the heart is better than corn in the barn or wine in the vat. Christ in the heart is better than dollars in the bank account. Christ in the heart is, is, is better than the relationships that I'm saying no to. Christ in the heart is better than life. Christ in the heart is better than anything else that this world would tempt us to find joy in. Christ is our joy. Think of the lengths that we go to to pursue pleasure and happiness. Thousands will pay for tickets to sit around and listen to somebody tell them jokes. And we'll laugh for a moment 
But by the time we go to bed at night, we're, we're, we're feeling again the pressures and the chaos of our lives. But friend, what can give you a peace that surpasses understanding is when you find joy in Christ and in Christ alone. David's joy allows him to sleep at night. Verse 8, in peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Wes said last week that when we sleep, that's when we are most compromised. That's when we can't protect ourselves. But with Christ, there is joy and there is security. So we ask, is it worth it? Is it, is it worth, is it worth saying no to things? Is it worth the hardship? Is it worth the perseverance? Is it worth the challenge of following Christ? But, but how wonderful it is of, of Jesus to say that no one, no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters, mother or father or children or lands for the sake of the gospel in my name, no one will receive, they will not receive a hundredfold. They'll receive more. If you've rejected something now, the joy of the gospel in what you will receive with Christ is so much greater. We are secure because of our joy. An old book called Pilgrim's Progress tells us where we can find that joy as well. Maybe you're familiar with the book, but it follows Christian on this allegory and his journey away from the city of destruction to the glory of the celestial city. And he's on his journey and he, he tells one of his friends, won't you come with me? Come with me. And the, the friend looks at him and he says, and leave our friends and our comforts behind us? Christian said, yes, because all which you shall forsake is not worthy to be compared with a little of that, a little of that that I am seeking to enjoy. Friends, how are you sleeping? Can you sleep well knowing that you are safe and secure in the, con in, in the chaos of our world because trust in Christ secures us in chaos? Just this week, I was awakened by the wind at times, a, a boom of thunder, a crack of lightning will, will spring me out of the bed and make sure everything is okay. And occasionally we lie awake on our pillows, pondering the challenges of the chaos in our world, the things that we can't control, the things we wish we could change. And our spiritual insomnia might include our fears about the struggle we experience as believers. But when we're having our own spiritual insomnia, the Bible tells us to have the faith of a child. And when a child can't sleep, all they can do is cry. And when they cry out, they're crying out for the security of the relationship that they have with their parents, their mother or their father. And just what that child needs in those moments, in the midst of the chaos of their night, is to be rocked to sleep, safe and secure, in the arms of the one who loves them and would give anything for them. There's an old song that talks about that. Leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms. Leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. Friend, would you entrust yourself to the everlasting arms of Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask, Lord, answer us when we call. Be gracious to us and hear our prayer. For you, O Lord, have, have delivered us in our distress. You, O Lord, have granted us salvation when we did not deserve it. Your undeserved kindness to give us Christ to die in our place so that we might have life in him. So, Lord, we ask that you would intervene. We ask that you would change. We ask that you would 
Help us to have the faith to pursue and stay faithful. God, for those who lie on their beds at night worried about the life around them or worried about their own sin, Lord, we pray that we would turn in repentance and trust in you. That we would have hope and joy that lasts far beyond this life, that is in boundless storehouses of heaven where we are with you and always with the Lord. For with him there is fullness of joy. Thanks, Lord, that you protect and guard and care for your people. Lord, I pray that we would be those of trust, of hope, and security in the midst of the chaos around us. God, we love you because you have first loved us and that we are safe in you. In Christ's name, amen.